Mark is kind of a forgotten gospel, and we get to actually dig into it and, and, and understand a little more today. We're going to look at, you know, who wrote the book, what it's about, who they wrote it to, and what was kind of the main point. Uh, we're going to go super deep into the book today, get to the first verse, and then we're going to stop. So it's going to be a, a good day to be in church today. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get into the book and the details and the facts behind it, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, okay? It's New Year's Day, everybody. It's resolution time, all right? And we have to, we have to make jokes about resolutions as pastors. It's one of the things we have to do. It's in our contracts. Uh, if you have made resolutions, you raise your hand, anybody? <laughs> you, you're, you're hiding from me. You're lying. You, too, you have too. Anyway, it's okay. Resolutions are a good thing. This time of year, we, we spend this, this, the last yesterday and today reflecting on our last year and examining what's going to come next year. We have this really retrospective slash corrective attitude right now. We look back on our, our year and say, gosh, were, were the things that I did, were they what I wanted to do? Did, did I accomplish my goals, and did I affect the right kind of change I wanted? And this coming year, what are my new goals? What are my new changes? We focus on things like diets and exercise. You know, the joke is that every gym parking lot is full, but every candy shop is empty until next week when we realize we made a huge mistake, right? It's, that's my story anyway. I'm sticking to it. But we, we talk about these physical things, these temporal things, and we, we consider what are our priorities for the year. Your goals, the things you're going to put effort into, are the things that are most important to you. Now, there are seasons. There are seasons when certain things become more important than others, but overall, you can look at the last year, the last couple years, the last few years of your life, and where you spend your time and energy and money is a good indicator of what's most important to you. When I look at the last few years of my life, even I've done this a few times over the course of my life, it's often a reality check for me, you know, because what's most important to me and where I spend most of my time don't always line up. We're going to start today with a question, and we're going to look at it through Mark's eyes eventually, but our question for the day for the Gospel of Mark is, if you wrote a book about what mattered most, what would be the first verse? Like, what's the, the first thing somebody would say is most important to you? Honestly, there are times in my life I ask myself that question. I don't like the answer. Uh, people say, oh, he loves playing disc golf. Uh, he loves running. Uh, I, love, I love my job. I, 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 I love the Steelers. Those are all true things. I do like all those things. But I don't want that to be the first thing people know about me. See, what I want is I want people to know that I love Jesus like crazy, because I want them to know and love Jesus like crazy also. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I want everybody to know that. And my life should structure itself so that Jesus is the most important thing. You know, when you look at your year coming up, you look at your year past, start asking yourself those questions. Are there things in my life that are more important than Jesus? And, and it's... There probably are, guys. It, it's, it's natural. It happens. But when we find those things, we have to ask God to correct that behavior and help us figure out how to prune those things back to where they belong, which is way behind Jesus. And today we're going to look at the gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at the, the, the intentions of the gospel writers themselves, because there was no doubt in their mind 
what was the most important thing to them. If we look at the four Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus. They walked with him. They watched him do miracles. So they gave a, a firsthand account of what Jesus did and what he taught. Luke was not a disciple. He was actually a doctor, and he was hanging out with Paul and the early church leaders, and he gathered firsthand accounts and faithfully recorded the details that he found in his gospel, Luke. Mark is kind of this, the, the forgotten gospel because we don't spend a lot of time in it. The guy who wrote Mark wasn't a disciple. We don't actually know a ton about him, but we know that he was hanging out with Peter. We knew that he was hanging out with Paul and Barnabas for a while. We'll learn more about that in a bit. But that's kind of it. Mark is written as a, a collection of stories and memoirs as well. So we have, in the four Gospels, we have two disciples, a doctor, and a friend of a disciple, all writing their own accounts of Jesus' life, and they all tell the same story. They all talk about the same Jesus, the same reason he came. And we're going to dig way into that today. So what's so special about Mark? Like, in, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably done studies in John. John talks about the spiritual sides of Jesus' teaching. You talked about, you've probably done studies in Luke. Luke is a really popular Christmas message. We just did some Luke stuff in Advent, which is awesome, by the way. Uh, we spend time in Matthew, because Matthew ties a lot of the Old Testament to Jesus. He, he focuses on more of a Jewish group, but we don't spend a lot of time in the book of Mark. And that's kind of a cry and shame, because we'll learn today the book of Mark was written to everybody, and it was written so that everybody could know who Jesus is. So the first thing we're going to talk about for Mark today is it's actually the shortest gospel. It was probably written around 55 AD. It's what we're calling an action gospel. Uh, it's got vivid descriptions and fewer teachings than the other gospels. Mark focuses on what Jesus did and what people responded to him when he did those things over and over and over again. It's really fast-paced. Uh, the, the cool thing about Mark is we think it's the first gospel that was written down. The evidence seems to suggest that in 55 AD, Mark wrote this one down. It's believed that Luke actually used the gospel of Mark as a reference point for some of his gospel stories. So Mark's an important book. He's the first guy to write things down. And he wanted to get things written down that were important to people so they would know who Jesus is. It's an action gospel because it moves. This thing moves really fast. It reads like a movie script or like a graphic novel. My, my son reads The Diary of a Wimpy Kid and other graphic novels like that. And what that, that does is they show a picture with a scene, and then it goes to the next picture and the next picture and the next picture. There's no setup between the scenes. It moves really fast. So the gospel of Mark is short and fast. What else do we want in America? We want short, fast stories. We should love Mark. And we're going to learn in this series, we really should love the book of Mark because it's a really good account of Jesus' life and ministry. ministry excuse me. In the first chapter of Mark, just to kind of give you an idea of how fast this moves, chapter 1 has 45 verses. There are nine different stories in those 45 verses. That's like five verses a story. Mark goes through it. He uses the word immediately over and over again, like 30 plus times in the gospel to keep things moving. Let me show you an example in uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew, okay? It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. The next verse, he does the same thing to James and John of Zebedee. Immediately they follow him. And then that story is over. Then immediately they go to the next story. And then immediately, it's just, it's just moving. He goes. You almost get the sense that John Mark has got like this agenda. Like he really wants to get everything on paper and doesn't want to spend time dabbling around in details that are less important to him. The details are important, but when you're writing down the story of the Savior of the world, you really want to make sure you get the important stuff down. When we read this story, the one that's on the screen here, and we talk about uh, Jesus calling his disciples, we see a pattern that develops throughout Jesus' whole ministry. And it's actually a pattern the Gospel of Mark follows as well. It's a pattern called follow, believe, obey. Now, Jesus, when he called his disciples, he didn't give them like a nine-page treatise on why they should follow him or what his qualifications as a rabbi were or why he chose them instead of somebody else. He didn't do all that. He just said, put your nets down, come follow me. And they did. And he did that over and over again. Everybody who followed Jesus, he just simply said, come with me. Come watch me work. Watch me teach. Listen to what I say. Watch how I love people. See who I am. Jesus knew. Jesus taught John Mark, taught Peter, taught the disciples. If you just follow Jesus, you're going to fall in love with him. And Mark's gospel is written on action, what Jesus did, what he taught, because John Mark knew if you just follow him, you're going to fall in love with him. When you follow Jesus, you begin to believe what he says because Jesus does things only God can do. He says things only God can say. He loves people only the way God can. So when he says something like, I am God, you, it lines up. His actions support who he says he is. So we go through and we look at this follow, believe, obey pattern. Mark focuses on the follow part, knowing that believe and obey will come next. And keep that in your mind as we go through this next series for the next few months. Mark is focusing on teaching you who Jesus is, trusting that that will lead to you following him and believing him and obeying him. Okay? So, we'll keep going here. We'll, we'll start to look at some of the background for the book of Mark. And we're going to go through this really quick because it's important, but I want to get through it because we have some cool things to talk about at the end today. When we read a passage, whether it be a Bible passage or a magazine article or a textbook, anything, you should be asking three questions when you read it. The first is, who wrote it? Who did they write it to? And why did they write it? If you miss the three things there, you're going to have a hard time understanding what is being written. So we're going to look at the first one. The author was John Mark. The early church unanimously believed this account was written by John Mark and that he got this information from Peter's preaching and memoirs. So let's talk about for a second who this John Mark guy is because he's not a super famous Bible character, at least not for the right reasons. John Mark uh, was not a disciple of Jesus. We don't know if he was there in like the 72 hanging out with him. We don't know if he followed Jesus. We don't know a lot about him. We know in Acts 12 that he's a person. We meet him for the first time in Acts chapter 12. Uh, later on in Colossians, we actually learn that John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a traveling companion of Paul. So on Paul's first missionary journey, he went with Barnabas. Actually, in Acts chapter 13, 
we see that John Mark is with Paul and Barnabas for a while. Uh, Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship to Pamphylia, landing at a port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas traveled on to Antioch and Pisidia. We don't really know why John Mark left. We don't really know what was going on before that. We just know that he left. But he was with them to start with. This leaving seems to have caused a rift between him and Paul. Because later on in Acts chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to head out on their next journey, and they're arguing about whether or not John Mark should come with them this time. We'll read in Acts 15 verse 36, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we preached the word of the Lord and see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. Barnabas knew John Mark deserves a chance to do this again. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued on with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and went on his journey. That's pretty much what we know. We don't know exactly why John Mark and Paul were not good buddies at this point. We don't really know what Barnabas and John Mark did. We just, we just know they separated. They went on their own ways. This story has unfortunately been blown up over the years in the church to make it think like John Mark was somehow a bad guy. He made Paul mad, therefore he's a bad guy. But that's not what we learn in Scripture. You see, you have to understand, behind the pages of Scripture, there are people, and there are relationships, there are agreements and disagreements, there are fights, there is reconciliation. We know that, Peter, or that Paul and John Mark did not stay enemies. They were not bad, mean to each other. We actually see later on, toward the end of Paul's life, the one person he asked for was John Mark. In his letter to Timothy, his second letter, this is close to the end of his life, Paul's realizing he's almost done. Like, he's, he's not long for the world. And he says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. This Mark is John Mark. It's the same guy. So toward the end of Paul's life, John Mark and Paul have reconciled. And the one guy Paul asks for is John Mark, which is pretty cool. Now, all that backstory is important for us to understand who wrote this book. We don't know a whole lot more about John Mark, but we know that he got his information from Peter. That's passed down through early church teachings and tradition. Um, so we know that Peter's preaching and his memoirs were the source of Mark's gospel. And that actually, when you read the, the way Mark is lined up with the, the fast-paced actions and facts, it makes sense. Like, Peter was not a man to beat around the bush. Right? He was pretty direct. He would just tell you what was going on and then move on to the next thing. It was, it was a fisherman's attitude. Tell me what I got to know, and let's go do the next thing. And you can see in Peter's teaching, he was, he was with Jesus. He watched Jesus work. He watched the miracles. He watched Jesus love people. He watched Jesus die. He was there when Jesus came back. He was there when Jesus ascended to heaven. In his mind, in Peter's mind, what Jesus did proves that he is who he says he is. He is God. So why mess with anything else? Just tell them what Jesus did, and they'll figure out that he is actually God. And that teaching comes down in the way Mark wrote his gospel, which is pretty cool. So the first question is, who wrote the book? The second question is, to whom did they write it, right? Well, John Mark wrote this to 
the Gentile audience, which basically means not directly to the Jewish nation. So it was written to everybody, is the short answer. It was probably written during a time when persecution threatened the church. So if you recall, in AD 55, that's kind of the start of Nero's reign. Nero was the emperor of Rome, and this was a bad dude. Um, he, was, he would torture and kill Christians, feed them to the lions. He would display their bodies on the streets to warn people about being Christians. This was the guy who was taking over in Rome when John Mark wrote this gospel down. So you can get the sense that John Mark has this idea of, I better get this written down before it's too late. And you can see that in his writing, the immediacy, the urgency in his writing. He really wants to make sure he gets everything written down before something terrible happens. The last question we had is, why did they write this book? Well, Mark wrote this account to show the world who Jesus is and what he's done. The central theme of Mark is actually outlined in the first verse of his book. And so without further ado, let's look at the first verse. This is the meat of our sermon today, so settle in. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark leaves nothing to question. This is exactly what he wants to say. He wants you to know this is really good news. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. No questions asked. That's what he wants you to know. And he spends the rest of his book demonstrating those three facts. So let's break down what these three things are and why they're so important to us today. The first thing is the good news. Why is this news so good? And and why are people looking out for it that it would draw them in to understand this is really good news coming? Well, at the time of John Mark's writing, this is about 20, 25 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. So it's pretty fresh. Remember, this is the first gospel account written down. So there's not a lot of New Testament Bible scholars out there breaking down the reasons that Jesus came. They're still relying on the stories and the eyewitness accounts and the teachings of the apostles. So people were looking for some good news. Uh, Before Jesus came, there was this long period of silence where God didn't speak to his people for 400 plus years. They were ready for some news of any kind, and they were really hoping it would be good. The other thing that was happening during Jesus' time, during John Mark's time, excuse me, is like I said, Nero was taken over, but before that, Rome was ruling the world. Rome was not kind to Christians. There were times where it kind of waffled back and forth and let them be okay, but usually uh, Christians, Jewish people, excuse me, um, Rome was not kind to the Jewish nation. Uh, They were treated very badly, they were persecuted, and the Jewish people were ready to be saved from Rome. They were ready for somebody to take over and retake the throne of King David. So they were ready for some really good news. But before they could understand the really good news, they had to understand how bad it was to start with. We have the same problem today. We, we don't realize how bad a shape we're in until we see how good it can be. Let me give you an example. I was, when I was a few years ago, um, my dad gave me his wood planer. Um, he had bought a big planer to use to make decks, and planers are tools that make wood the same thickness. They shave wood down with blades. Um, and uh, he had used this thing to build his deck, and then he was done with it. And I was building guitars, and I was planing wood. He says, hey, you want to use this thing? Of course. 
if, if you haven't ever planed hardwood by hand, you don't know what a joy it is to have a machine do it for you. It's fantastic. So I was all excited. I'm going to use this beautiful planer. It's going to make my wood nice and smooth and flat, and I'm going to be able to work on guitars way easier. So I run my wood through this thing, and it's going great. It's shaving off wood. It's not super smooth, though. Like, there's gouges here and there. There's streaks. There's cuts. It's okay. It's good enough. Like it's, it's, it's working. It's shaving off the wood. Then I just got to sand it and work through and shave everything flat, make it look gorgeous. But the bulk of the work is being done, so I'm good. Like this, is, this is good enough. We're great. For the next few months, I'm chugging through this, <laughs> tripping breakers in my house as I'm overloading the machine. It was really great. And then one day, I was watching a tutorial. I was reading an article. I can't remember which one it was. And they were talking about caring for your tools. And they said, hey, when's the last time you changed the blades in your planer? <laughs> Uh, there's blades in there? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. And I thought, well, my dad used it on his deck, but I don't think he, well, what, what the heck, I'll just go in there, I'll, I'll change them. So I went in and pulled the blades out, and my goodness, they were dull. They were gouged out and nasty. The gouges were right exactly where I saw the stripes in my wood, and, and the, the teeth were really bad. Flipped those bad boys around, put the sharp edges in, fired it up, and I got beautiful flat wood no sanding, no requirements, no fixing it. It was ready to go. It was exactly how I thought it should be when I was reading the description of a planer. I didn't realize at the time, but good enough for me was bad. And it could have been much better. And it took an outside influence on my mind for me to realize that I can do better than this if I just change a few things. Jesus came to the world to show us how bad a shape we're in, and to encourage us that he can make it better. Now, this is not the same thing as like healthy, wealthy, and blessed, and you know, this, this, this silliness that we talk about with prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about making your life perfect. That's not what Jesus says he's going to do. Jesus is going to come and fix your biggest problem. And that comes into when Jesus is the Messiah. See, uh, Messiah in the Old Testament was a Hebrew word for anointed one. Uh, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God from the Old Testament. So, translated out, Jesus' name is Yahweh is salvation, the anointed one. It's kind of a goofy name, but it makes sense for what he is and who, who he is and what he came to do for us. The people of Israel... We're looking for somebody to come in and take over and sack Rome and free them from their captive, from their bondage. But they missed the fact that God was going to save them from their biggest problem first. In Ezekiel, uh, God is promising he's going to send somebody to save Israel. And he says, I'm going, to repl- I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. This imagery of heart of stone, heart of flesh, a stone, a hard heart means that you have shut yourself off emotionally. You've been hurt so much, you just don't want to hurt anymore, so you stop the emotions. But that means you don't feel joy or happiness, but you don't feel pain and sadness either. This hard-heartedness Israel had, they had been conquered and exiled so many times, they were just numb to it. And they couldn't see the joy of the God they were following. So God says, look, I know you're hurt. I know you've given up. I know you're not, you're not in this anymore. I'm going to fix that. I didn't design you to be emotionless. I designed you to be full of love and joy and happiness and sadness and 
grow as people, but you can't do that with a hard heart. So I'm going to take your hard heart and I'm going to give you a fresh new heart. See, because when Jesus came, people at the time were focused on religious rules. They were focused on making sure they were good enough for God. But that's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to do all the right things. God wants us to love him. And we can't love God with a hard heart. So when Jesus came, he unpacked that whole system and said, look, I'm the Messiah. I have come to save you from a thing you don't even realize you're in danger of. They were concerned at the time that Rome was the problem. They thought that occupation was the issue. They thought they needed their land back. Today, we think our diagnosis for our disease is our biggest problem, or our financial situation is our biggest problem, or our family situation is our biggest challenge, or our work is our biggest challenge. And gang, those are really big things. I don't want to minimize any struggles you're having. I have them too. But that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we don't realize how badly we need to be saved from our sin nature. See, without Jesus, we can't be right with God. There's no way for us to do it. We are destined to be without God forever. See, God created us to live forever with Him in eternity, but He also gave us free will. So we can choose not to follow God, and if we choose not to follow God, He will let us choose ourselves right off into eternity without Him. The place we end up when we choose our own way, the Bible calls hell. Now, I know hell is a a, a controversial topic these days, which is silly because it's in the Bible. I don't know why it's controversial. But hell is a real place that God created so that his angels at the time, but now his creation, can be free from his presence like they want. But hell isn't like this bar scene with dancing girls and red devils and pitchforks and smoking and drinking and darts. That's a stupid picture that Hollywood uses for us. That's not even close to true. Hell is the worst thing you can possibly imagine, and then it's worse than that. Scripture tells us that every good thing comes from God the Father. That means that God is the source of love and light and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. Without God, those things don't exist. In their place, we get pain, anger, darkness, anxiety, fear. That's what hell is. Hell is not a bad place. Hell is the absolute absence of good. That's not a place we want to go. That is really bad news, but Jesus came to save us from that. That is really good news, everybody, and that's what John Mark is saying. Look, everybody, Jesus came. He's good news. He's the Messiah. He's saving us from your biggest problem. Rome is still there. Oh, well, our eternity is secure in Christ. What could be better news than that? But John Mark also knew that only God can forgive sin. Only God can make things right. So he finishes his opening verse by saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there's some context here I want to make sure we break down. Son of God is not a biological term. If you were here for the Advent series with us, you learned that John, excuse me, John, Jesus came to earth through Mary by way of the Holy Spirit. There is no biological father. Uh, in, in the King James translations of the Bible, we learn that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. 
Begotten is a word we don't use anymore. Its root word is beget, which is also a word we don't use anymore. But beget means to bring forth. So quite literally, God the Father brought forth God the Son in Jesus. When we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're talking about three persons of God in a singular God. So three persons, one God. It's a Trinity doctrine. It's difficult to understand that doctrine. I'm teaching you about it, and I'm still learning about it. Every few years, I get a a new piece of information that kind of reshapes my understanding of it. That's okay, gang. It's okay if we don't quite understand this one. The Scriptures tell us there are three persons who are God, and Scriptures also tell us that there is one God. How we make sense of that is a matter of no small debate. I want to encourage you with two things, though. First, there is a really good resource on PursueGod.org. It's a teaching series called Trinity. We actually got into it and broke down what exactly all these pieces of the Trinity doctrine mean. Go check it out. It's a really good starting place for you to bring your questions about how God can be both one and three. The second thing I want to tell you about, though, is don't give up. Right? Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that because you don't understand the Trinity, God must not be real or you must not be smart enough, or God must be disappointed with you. Right? God is not some distant being shaking his finger in disgust at you because you can't understand this. God wants to be known by you. He sent Jesus to the world to become a human being so that we could know him. So don't, don't worry about your doubts. Don't, don't think like you're somehow less of a, a good Christian if you doubt things. Bring those doubts to God and ask your questions, and he'll answer them. The last part I want to talk about today is the rest of John Mark, the rest of the Gospel of Mark, John Mark, spends talking about what Jesus did and how people responded to what he did. And this, this back and forth is the constant pattern of, of the book of Mark. We see a lot of different things Jesus does. He, he heals uh, peoples of their illnesses. He casts out demons. He tells the wind to stop, and it does. Only God can do that stuff. That's demonstrating that God has the power and that Jesus has the power of God. Jesus also demonstrates his wisdom and his authority in teaching when he tells people that their religious system is not good enough. God cares more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. And that was radical. That, that concept was craziness back in the day, and it's still crazy today. That concept actually got Jesus killed by the religious leaders. See, that was one of the responses, was they, people would either respond with fear and anger, or they would respond with questions and doubts, or they would follow him and say, well, he must be what he says he is. There's a, um, there's a, a famous author, his name's C.S. Lewis, you may know him from like, the Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, he's written a lot of books. He has a passage in Mere Christianity where he's talking about there are only three real responses to Jesus out there. You can either think he's crazy and kill him as a demon. You can think he's a liar and ignore him, or you can fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. There's not really a fourth option. He doesn't leave that to us. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And that's the question that has to go before all of us today. John Mark spends his entire book recording who Jesus is and what he did. He's giving us evidence, and the question is at our feet now. What do we do with Jesus? If you, if you don't know Jesus today, and you have questions about who he is and what he did, 
please come talk to me. Come find John. Come find one of us leaders up front. We would love to answer your questions, uh, pray for you, encourage you, and point you in the right direction for the help you can get. I'd also encourage you to stick around for this series because the book of Mark was written to answer your questions about Jesus. John Mark wrote this down because he knew somebody had to tell the story of Jesus for generations to come. So hang out with us. Keep listening. It's going to be a great series. If you do know Jesus today, you would probably admit that he really is the best thing that's ever happened to you. He really is the most important thing in our lives. We come back to our original question, we have to keep asking ourselves, if somebody wrote a book, or if you wrote a book about what mattered most, what would the first verse be in your book? See, you're in charge of writing your life book. You're in charge of what you do. You can choose where you go. You can choose what you spend your time, money, and energy with. So you can write that first line. We just got to ask God to show us where those priorities lie, and then trust him and follow him, because Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. And my plan this year is to make sure everybody knows that. I would challenge you to do the same thing. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your message. Thank you for coming to earth to save us. Thank you for sending us the good news that you love us and that you can't wait for us to come home. God, please work in people's hearts in this room and around us this week, this year, and get folks to fall in love with you, God. Help us to see the joy and the beauty that you bring. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you that we can start the new year on a fresh perspective of who Jesus is and what that means to us. Amen.